In this podcast, we will be discussing topics such as addiction, rape, and suicide, which may be distressing to some listeners. If you or someone you know is struggling, help and support is available and is there for you at Lifeline 13 11 14, Beyond Blue at 1300 22 46 36, Kids Helpline at 1800 55 1800, the Sexual Assault and Domestic Violence Counselling Service at 1-800-737-732 and Gambler's Help at 1-800-858-858. You're listening to a Sim Media Podcast. In a world of iconic rips, immortal solos, the highest notes, and the most guttural growls, the debate of the greats has raged on for decades, and we settle them here. This is The Great Metal Standoff. Ladies and gentlemen of the rock and roll, punk, prog, hardcore thrash, and heavy metal community, my name is Jason Evans, and this is The Great Metal Standoff the podcast that pits music's greatest albums in track-by-track combat, and it is story time on the show for this edition of the podcast. The bands going into battle are Dream Theater and Queensryche, thus making this the first official prog battle on the standoff. The albums in question are also very interesting as they are both concept albums. For Dream Theater... It will be their 1999 prog metal innovator, Metropolis Part 2, Scenes from a Memory. Going one-on-one with Queensryche's most popular and long-lasting release, Operation Mindcrime from 1988. Just in case there's any children listening, when we talk about concept albums, the best way to describe it is that listening to these albums is a bit like watching a movie. Or reading a book. It's like a band having an attempt at being an author by trying their hands at a piece of fiction and telling a compelling story. And with every great story, we need some multi-dimensional characters to get invested in. For Metropolis, our main character is Nicholas, and if you're a fan of mystery and travelling through time to find the clues, you've come to the right place. For Operation Mindcrime, we explore the story of Nikki, similar name ironically, a flawed individual who finds his purpose through actions that can be best compared to the actions of a minion to a Bond villain. My guest for this battle is Moshpit's most trivial and encyclopedic contributor we've had, and our newest team member, Ben Holt. And in setting this battle up, we both collectively agreed that to help break down the themes motifs and literary techniques that help tell these album stories, we should collaborate with Sin's flagship local arts and culture program, Artsmitten. Therefore, joining us will be Sin's Artsmitten executive producer, Tom Denham. This is going to feel like, for me, prepping for a VCE English exam, or a crash course in theatre studies, where Tom will be the specialist in story, and Ben being the specialist in musical composition. Here's how the battle will go down. Every album battle will be contested in track-by-track format by our podcast panel. 
Each individual panellist will select a winner of each pairing. The winning track receives a point to that individual's tally score. Tracks on albums that go uncontested can receive a tally point if a panellist awards it a gold star, which will be coming into play today. Once the battle is over, the album with the highest tally score will receive one grand point for that album. If a panellist's tally score results in a draw, both albums will receive a half grand point each. The album with the most grand points will be declared the winner. Now just before we start, I'd like to state again that in this discussion we will be occasionally mentioning addiction, rape and suicide. And if at any point during this discussion you feel distressed, remember, help and support is there for you and always available. Uh, Those are, once again, Lifeline at 13 11 14, Beyond Blue at 13 hundred twenty two forty six thirty six, Kids Helpline at 1-800-55-1800, the Sexual Assault and Domestic Violence Counselling Service at 1-800-737-732, and finally, Gambler's Help at 1-800-858-858. Okay. Now we begin. Let's go meet Ben and Tom. Roll the audio. For the first time in the arena, we have Moshpit's newest member, Ben. It's great to have you here. You've been very passionate in the last few weeks since joining Moshpit. How does it feel to be here? I do appreciate that, Jason. I was passionate until I uh, scored a zero on this week's quiz. But, you know, these things do happen. Uh, Look, I'm feeling great. I'm really excited about the two records that we're going to be diving into tonight. Funnily enough, I would have seen both of them live in uh, their entirety this year until uh, the pandemic happened. I did get to see Jeff Tate sing the full Operation Mindcrime, the classic from Queenstrike, and do still have a ticket that's just on hold at the moment for Metropolis Part 2 scenes from A Memory in Full from Dream Theatre. So you are going to see these two live at some point? Yeah, I, I was luckily able in February just to catch the, the Operation Mindcrime one, and it was... Uh, completely wild. It was so damn good. Excellent. So we're, we're going to have a, a passionate drink here and a Queens Rock fan for this battle. But uh, once we met uh, when you joined Moshpit, which actually wasn't too long ago, uh, Ben, uh, when I pitched this idea to you to do this battle, we thought it'd be perfect to do a collaboration with Sin's Art Smitten and a personal friend of yours. So we've reached out to the EP of Sin's Art Smitten, Tom Denham, who has had a history of doing uh, radio dramas here at Sin. So, Tom, welcome to the Great Metal Standoff. Welcome to the battle that dissects two stories of an album. And uh, how does it feel to be here? Oh, it's fantastic to be here. Um, I have fond memories of listening to bands such as uh, Dream Theatre and Metallica and Iron Maiden back in the day um, and still listen to them um, on a semi-regular basis. So it's wonderful to be able to, be able to uh, speak about those today, but to also um, apply some of the uh, storytelling methods behind that as well. What, how many concept albums like, or albums with a story that have you consumed before today? Um, quite a few. Um, I think uh, probably the most notorious one, it's nowhere near the metal genre, but I would often listen to um broadway musicals um if i'm going for a walk or something so hamilton and beetlejuice are on the regular spin at the moment um but i guess um in this uh context um i have listened to a lot of dream theater before 
and um, a lot of other bands um, who kind of play with this idea of storytelling. I know Pink Floyd and the Chemical Brothers have adopted this um, idea before as well. So it's um, something I'm uh, semi-familiar with, definitely. Okay. So what the plan is for the listeners at home, the plan is this evening is for Tom is going to be our expert storytelling. uh, What are we going to say? Panelist? We'll say our expert storytelling panelist between these two albums. And we've got Ben who believes he's very confident at giving us a expert analysis of the music composition. Definitely. I think I'm up for the challenge for sure. I, I, I will say this in preparation to making this for me on a personal level, I feel like I'm about to enter a year 12 English exam and about to uh, write a, enter the three hour exam and write a bunch of essays. Cause there's so much to discuss between these two. What I'm hoping to get out of you two, Ben and Tom today is if you could be uh, my one night only English teacher. Absolutely. We can fulfill that. <laughs> I reckon. <Calvin> ben. <laughs> More than happy to do our, do our best work. It's yeah, be we get great. the whiteboard out. <laughs> what was the name of your uh, English teachers back in VCE? Oh, who did I have? I had, one of mine uh, was uh, Miss Masama. That was uh-huh. one of my English teachers. Oh, she was oh, my wow. literature teacher in year 11. Oh, really? did you guys go to the same high school? Yeah. We, we did, did, yeah. yeah. In the same year level. Um, and I actually showed him this dream theatre record back in the day. So Really? I, I do recall quite vividly. It was probably in commerce or something like that. <laughs> so good. So, Tom, what was your reaction to um, when Ben did? Was it, so it was Metropolis Part 2 that you introduced him to? Yeah, it was Metropolis Part 2. I thought uh, musically it was quite interesting, something a bit different Tom had never heard before. And I uh, thought, you know, the, the narrative through it was going to hold his attention. So, Tom, safe to say the first time you heard it, how'd you feel? I, I think I was really blown away because I think it was my, first and foremost, it was my first exposure to dream theatre. But I think as well, going into it prior, what I was really a fan of uh, were orchestral soundtracks. And I think dream theatre inhibits that so well. And I think it is really complementary to telling a story. It gives it this grandiose vibe, which I think is really attractive. And on the opposite end, Operation Mindcrime by Queensryche, uh, was this your first time listening to that one all the way through, Tom? Or had you been listening to that one in the past as well? This, this was my first time listening to this one. And I, it's fair to say, like, when you put these two together, I think um, you can definitely draw um, a lot of contrast, but a lot of similarities as well. So I think it's an interesting choice to kind of put these two head to head. Excellent. So okay. well, yep. the, Go ahead. the other night, I was uh, playing some rock music with a friend and I told him, I said, hey, actually going to be on the Great Metal Standoff and we're comparing Dream Theatre, Metropolis Part 2 scenes from memory to Queen's Rock Operation Mindcrime. And he looked at me and he goes, you know what? Those are two perfect albums to actually match against each other. And I can't help but agree with him. I, it, it's bizarrely, they're, they're unique enough to each other, but at the same time, there's kind of this underlying similarity to them as well which makes them just a perfect fit so it's going to be great to break into it and uh, see what comes out on top all right uh just before we get into it the final piece of admin tom uh i did mention as i was introducing you to the great mail standoff that you do do a lot of uh radio drama at sin would you not just like to just break down and share with us what you precisely that is 
Absolutely. Thank you. Um, I do a radio drama podcast series called The Glam Gizmo. It's a full cast audio, so it's pretty much like a movie for your ears. The whole story is set in Melbourne or around Australia um, and is a sci-fi epic and tells a story of a, a marvellous machine that falls into the wrong hands and has the power to open uh, interdimensional gateways onto Melbourne. And uh, all kinds of monsters and madness uh, happens upon the city in a very Scooby-Doo or Ghostbusters-esque fashion in a very quirky but fun kind of way. Well, there you go. To anyone listening, if that tickles your fancy, be sure to check that out. The Glam Gizmo. And uh, direct, directing? What, 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 what do we call you? Producer? Uh, producer, writer. <laughs> um, it, it was um, executive produced uh, by Marcy and Tom, uh, the previous artsmen and EPs. They've been very instrumental in the process. Um, but I pretty much uh, conceived the idea. They helped me develop it. And I wrote it, directed it, and edited it and put it all together. And, uh, and I can give it uh, to your glorious ears now. Well, there you have it. Glam gizmo. But okay, so th- without further ado, I think it is time to start comparing some Metropolis Part 2 and some Operation Mindcrime. So we are going to gesture over to our timekeeper who has become very, uh, I would say restless, but no, he looks a bit more calm. Like thing, as the more the world gets more chaotic, the more calm he becomes just because of uh, the nature of everything. It's always so hard when we do standoffs like this and he revels in the chaos, revels in our pain because this is going to be a pretty difficult one to distinguish. So timekeeper, if you may... Put us out of our misery. Ring the bell. And with that, story time on the Great Metal Standoff begins. Metropolis Part 2, scenes from a memory by Dream Theater versus Queensrock Operation Mindcrime. We start with, for Metropolis, scene one of Act 1. It's called Regression versus the Mindcrime opening track, I Remember Now. Very, very similar opening tracks to start off with. Definitely. I feel as if um, the goal here is just to kind of guide us slowly into what our ears are about to take in for the next hour or so. Uh, Interestingly enough, Dream Theater very rarely ever open with an acoustic track on their albums. So this is actually quite a nice little, I'm not going to call it a campfire song, but at the same time, you know, James Labrie is setting the scene for what's about to come and his vocals here, for the most part, especially for James Labrie, are actually quite pedestrian. He's not using a lot of his range. He's just kind of slowly going through it. And then, on the other hand, when we're talking about the Queen, Queen Strike track, I Remember Now, uh, it starts off just incredibly dark and almost ethereal-like. Your, your head's kind of spinning what's going on here. I remember now. Yeah. Uh, I do I like, too, how that how line started. does... <laughs> I do love as well how that line actually comes back and bookends the record towards the end, but we'll get to that later. But Tom, take us through some of the story here. What, what, how are we setting up the scene early? Absolutely. So in Act 1 of uh, Metropolis Part 2, uh, we're introduced to our protagonist, Nicholas, who is a troubled person and he's going through past life regression therapy. Uh, We're introduced to this idea of hypnotherapists um, who helps him see a girl in his memories named Victoria Page. Um, And in the first track regression, uh, he learns that she is murdered 
and that he was Victoria in her past life. However, contrastingly, in Operation Mindcrime, uh, what's really funny, uh, I love uh, this little, I guess, nugget, uh, is that the main character in this album is called Nikki, and the other one's called Nicholas. It just kind of weirdly just ah, yes. coincides with one another. Um, he's uh, in a catatonic state. Um, he's unable to remember much, but he has uh, snippets and ideas from his past, and then his uh, memories come flooding back in the track, I remember now, hence those words. And he remembers how he was an addict and it would be political radical. And he's frustrated with contemporary society due to the economic uh, inequality, uh, which is very, very interesting. Two very um, different stories there, but at the same time, there's some similar elements happening. You could make that case. You, you can, right out of the gate, you can kind of tell that Nikki from Operation Mindcrime isn't that well-liked of a person because uh, when he's in this catatonic state, it's, is it fair to say he's hospital? He's in a hospital at the minute, right? Yeah. Because one of the doctors comes in and says, perhaps you need another shot because you're still awake. So they inject him. Then she goes, sweet dreams, you bastard. <laughs> and in a very British accent as well. So that does give the impression, yeah. oh, this person isn't a very well-liked figure in the public. So what does that mean, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, I think one really interesting thing that's worth unpacking more and more in stories is that your protagonist isn't always going to have good motives. And I think the idea of an anti-hero uh, is a very attractive uh, hook for a story. So that's what really captured me about it. Whereas on the contrary, regression over in Dream Theatre, when you, when you were saying it, uh, we're introduced to Victoria, it only just seems to be a small glimpse at the very beginning. It's that very subtle beginning. Well, and again, every story start, begins subtly, doesn't it? It does, yeah. It feels like a real calm before the storm here with that, um, how Ben described before, it's very pedestrian, it's very acoustic. Um, yeah, it, it's a very subtle play of like what we're going to see later on. You're asking the question, what is the relationship right out of the way? Just based off the lyric, hello, Victoria, it's nice to see you, my friend. Like, oh, how did, how do we know that? And then you just explore that as the album goes on. Uh, in regarding my first uh, tally point, I'm taking regression just based off an acoustic piece um, a more intriguing intro and we've got a little acoustic piece with a nice James Labrie vocals. The other side I remember now I thought was just a bit more atmos, a bit more of a setting the scene than it was a song. So that's why I'm taking regression, giving my point to Dream Theatre immediately. What are you guys thinking, Ben and Tom? Interestingly enough, Jason, I would actually go with I Remember Now. I just feel as if it opens and your mind goes, what is this? What is going on? It's very dark. It's unpleasant, almost eerie. Whereas mm. I feel as if um, in terms of making a statement early, I feel Dream Theatre kind of almost missed the mark on that opening track, in my opinion. How so? Um, I think it just starts off that little bit too passive for me. Uh, mm. I, don't, I, I feel that acoustic track is a little bit throwaway, especially from Dream Theatre standards. There's not many layers going on. And yeah, for the, for the most part, uh, I just feel I remember now kind of in a minute 17 sets it up perfectly for Anarchy X that comes in right after and immediately captures your attention. Yeah. Yeah. There's um, some interesting points from both sides. I think dream theater 
plays it a little safe whilst it's a really nice track. Whereas I remember now has a real sense. I think this is the word that comes to mind when like you think about what is this kind of uh, hilarity that's ensuing. It's a real uh, disturbance of baffle gab. Like you're really trying to figure out what's going on. And that's what's uh, really attractive to me for this track. So my point's going to, I remember now. I liked that word baffle gag because I could kind of give that same thing for regression to uh, enhance my argument because now you're sitting there, why is this man under this, basically hypnotism, isn't it? It's just essentially hypnotism. Why is this man being hypnotized and what is all, why is he there for, you know? And that leads you in. What's he doing in this really strange therapy session? I think it's a credit to both records that they open up in such an intriguing way that you kind of go, Ooh, not all the cards are on the table right away. Like I need to keep listening to this to see where this story is going. I think that's really awesome that they put a little bit of extra effort into some of these shorter tracks as well. Yeah. The fact we've gone this in depth on a two minute and a minute and a half track does speak volumes there, but okay. So Ben and Tom have both, taken operation mind crime as their first tally point uh, here in this battle and i didn't you can't write this you can't plan for this but both track two are instrumentals for metropolis it's scene two uh number the first part one overture 1928 versus uh queen's instrumental offering anarchy x okay this is where things really pick up a notch in technicality in rhythm and groove uh Interestingly enough, uh, the, this second track from Dream Theater especially is our first taste into Jordan Rudis, who had just joined the band on keyboard and is still their play, uh, keyboard player all these years later. And what an absolute wizard he is. The solos are borderline wild. They're out of control. But there's still plenty of great melody from John Petrucci, especially in his solos. They, they definitely have a lot of soul, a lot of feel to them in this track, which I love. Uh, plenty of Dream Theater songs, I'm sure we're aware. They're a little bit over the top when it comes to the solos. But here I feel as if they, they really tightened it up and just kind of got to the point right away. And some nice progressive moments throughout the song as well. The way I described Petrucci's solo in Overture was it puts the dream... Well, I said it was a dreamy theme. So in fairness, that's putting the dream in Dream Theater right there. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. He's, a, he's a man of many talents. And uh, Anarchy X, which is a... It's almost half the length of uh, the, the the Dream Theater track. But what I do like about it, it's got this galloping drum beat. The bass line's grooving with it and you can't help but feel uh, something just completely wild is going to take place. And I think the, the following tracks after, Revolution Calling, which we'll get to soon, uh, really is complemented so beautifully by this buildup. And also interesting to note, at this point in time, we are yet to hear Jeff Tate sing. Properly sing, yeah. Almost yeah, three true. minutes into the record. So I think that's quite rare, especially these days with music. Certainly is. Very strange. But uh, Tom, uh, Overture definitely kind of also sonically sounds like uh, we're traveling through, literally traveling through time. It's a wormhole through time. Whereas Anarchy X, it sounds like a, you're right there, front and center at a political rally. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's very aptly put. Um, I think both these tracks have a, a whirlwindly, uh, I guess, sense of disarray, which I really like. And there's something really attractive about that. 
I love that in the story aspect in Strange Deja Vu, um, Nicholas begins to think that Victoria is haunting him to find out more about why she died. I think that's really interesting. Whereas in Operation Mindcrime, it's this political rally, um, which are two very distinctly different things and they create two very different sounds. Tom, as a storyteller yourself, do you, what's your take on this idea that the first track each of, on both records did actually set up the story, but then we just went into instrumental after that? Was that to you a little bit of a baffling decision or do you think it's kind of setting the stage as if it was a theatre? It, it, it does feel very camp and theatrical. I think there's this idea that like the first, uh, I guess, uh, actor has said their monologue and now they're getting the stage ready for the next scene. And it gives mm. the audience or the listener that opportunity to absorb, indulge and take in what's happened and gives them that time to think about the words that have been spoken to them as well. So having an instrumental track right after makes a lot of sense, I feel. Very, very interesting indeed. Um, just I wanted to talk instruments with you, Ben, on uh, Overture. There's a point where there's a solid. Do you think that uh, Petrucci or someone in Dream Theater is exercising the use of a keytar at any point, especially in Overture? Oh, um, not in not in that track. I don't think so. All right, I did have um, the question because I I do. There are moments I'm thinking: Is that a key solo? Is that Petrucci putting a funny effect on his guitar solos, or is he actually busted out a keytar? Yeah, no, actually. I've watched the, um, the Scenes from Memory 1999 DVD. I think it's called Live Scenes from New York. And I'm certain it's all just played normally on, on a keyboard, not, not, not a keytar, if you will. Okay. All right. So where are our points lying, gentlemen? Unlike with the first round of picks, I really think this is an absolute stunning moment for Dream Theatre Overture. Uh, it, this album also is probably the one I would hand to someone that this was the record that got me into the band initially. And this was the track that completely cemented my love for dream theater because I'd never quite heard anything like it uh, as I was leaning into more progressive tendencies. Anarchy X is quite a good song. Uh, it sets it up nicely for the next one, but I think for what dream theater wanted to accomplish here, Overture is undisputed best out of the two. Uh, I would, you know what, I would uh, share your sentiment, Ben. I will also take uh, Overture from 1928. Just but just from a sonic picture, you're like we're either traveling through Nicholas's dreams. It feels like, a, for, to keep it PG, a little mind F going from the present all the way through the past, like a wormhole. Tra and, you know, we're traveling through a dream. And it's very, and just very on that, Jason, I think there's so many melodies and hooks instrumentally in this three-minute song that you just remember after the first time you heard them. So... It's brilliant, and it's very technical as well. I do have to mention that. Tom? I, I really like what Ben said um, about Dream Theater, like that this is the album that you would hand to someone to introduce them to because this is, was the album that he handed me. Um, and I think what Overture 1928 does really well is that it kicks into all those um, Dream Theater sounds that we know. And I think that really plays to its strength. I really like Anarchy X as well. I think there's a wonderful sense of mayhem there, um, which is also um, that there's something about it that feels like it's a marching machine 
but I think Overdure 1928 is the icing on the cake for me. So that's where my point's going to go. Okay, so for the first time tonight, uh, all three of us have uh, both selected the same song. So therefore, that takes us, for, for myself, it's 2-0 in favour of Metropolis, where we've, uh, where we've got one all between our guests, Ben and Tom. Interesting start. All right, track three, uh, as Ben mentioned, the first time we properly hear Jeff Tate singing, Revolution Calling goes up against Metropolis's Strange Deja Vu. Yes, this is where we get the full-fledged band of both, if I may say so. So we finally get to hear Jeff Tate's vocals. Uh, In case you're wondering, yes, they are completely stunning, although you're probably aware of that if you're listening to this. And we also get James Labrie uh, on Strange Deja Vu. Funnily enough, uh, James Labrie actually uh, suffered food poisoning uh, before they recorded the album Awake. So if you listen to him on Images and Words, he's got a much higher vocal range, whereas here you can tell that the food poisoning which affected his throat kind of did some damage. So if we're comparing vocalists, who has the better vocal performance? Jeff Tate does win hands down in my opinion. However, it's not just about vocals, it's about songwriting and the music. And I think Revolution Calling does such an excellent job. Firstly, the riffs are a little bit simple, but at the same time, they're incredibly groovy and catchy. I really love how the drums and the cymbal work, especially it's quite catching to the ear early on in this track and the light guitar that kind of kicks us in, uh, which perfectly works off Anarchy X as well. And for Strange Deja Vu, it's, it's a pretty wild song. The second half of it gets insanely crazy. There's even a bit of a almost cheesy hilarious organ line that kind of comes in. If you remember that one, Jason, Uh, it's just fun stuff all the way through and for the most part gee it's going to be a toss-up i'm pretty excited to kind of see which one i lean to but uh both these songs do a great great effort of uh continuing the story and at this point when you're listening to both these records i think you start to realize oh this is something really special going on here like these albums are brilliant tom your thoughts yeah, this this is where the story really gets interesting for both. Um, it's really setting the scene, I think, for what's to come. You've uh, met, I guess, your focal characters, but now you're kind of learning about the surrounding environment. Uh, for the case of Revolution uh, Calling, uh, we're taken to the head of the organisation and we're introduced to not the one and only Dr X who manipulates Nikki through a combination of his addiction and uh, brainwashing techniques to become an assassin, which is such a, a wicked and like... Um, th- th- this, this is a concept that I guess will be used in film as well um, and, it, and it feels very filmic. Uh, whereas in Metropolis Part 2 with um, uh, this track, um, it, it's, it's a lot more subtle. We're, we're learning about Victoria and who she is. And I think there's a real sense of uh, mystery that we revel in there. Um, there's mystery on both fronts. But I guess we learn a bit more in um, Operation Mindcrime as well. 
talking about brainwashing uh, Nikki over an Operation Mindcrime revolution calling, um, you can kind of hear it being indoctrinated into Nikki with just that really baritone, low delivery of the word revolution. You know, the whole revolution as the chorus is soaring along. You hear that periodically just placed at the end of the chorus. It sounds like a person is being indoctrinated at that point. Yeah, yeah. There, there is a sense of... Um hypnotherapy happening here as well and um i really like that it, it almost feels like a subliminal message and like as a listener you kind of go wow, how is this subjected on me and you kind of become very involved with the story which i really like and to your point then with uh deja vu it starts as like this really strong heavy metal head banging track then it transitions into this booty shake and funk song kind of end at the boom delit do do boom delit do do and then by the end it kind of ends similar to a piano ballad it's um it, it, it's incredibly strange how yeah firstly that that riff you're talking about midway through that that is just the groove in that is insane it's great uh, I, can imagine people, I can imagine people jumping up and down for that for the most part and yeah, yeah um, the the symbol work especially uh mike portnoy throughout this whole thing is just way too exciting to listen to and it's brilliant i really 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 do um love that track to death and again it's a bit of a change of pace for dream theater as well uh and when it gets a bit more crazy uh i think that's kind of what's to come in the next 10 years of the band's career damn uh tom just a question for you on on the deja vu track do you think there are parts instrumentally that have that were paid that was set up in overture 1928 that get paid off in this song like for example the chorus I, I, def, I definitely think so. Like there is that sense of hearkening back when you listen to that later on. Um, and I think that continuity really binds it together nicely. All right, Tom, we'll start with you on this one because I'm struggling because I really enjoy both of these tracks and I think it's a disservice if you don't give any of these ones a point, but I'm struggling. So I'll start with you. What do you, what do you think? Um, look, Strange Deja Vu, it's really interesting. There's this whole mystique that's built up and i think there's something that's really attractive about that however with revolution calling there is this sense of big and almost bombastic and this sense of seriousness uh with the um the indoctrination uh occurring to mickey um i think from a story aspect that's really um intriguing for me so my point is going to go to that Revolution calling it is. Well, hey, how can... What, what, is that the song that has the line, how, how can you trust anyone when everyone's a crook? That's it, yeah. There you go. I used to trust the media to tell me the truth and that's, how, that's what happens when you get disenfranchised in a Queensryche world. Ben, what are you saying? Yeah, I feel uh, if you attend a Dream Theatre show, that's probably a deep cut that you're probably not going to hear live and if you don't, you're not going to be overly saddened about it whereas i feel revolution calling is such a statement by queen shrike i think it's in their top 10 best songs of all time and that's a track that i would have to hear live which i did and i was wrapped about it uh that's getting a point from me revolution calling start to finish is just a classic progressive rock song and uh, if you haven't heard it i mean it's never too late to try i concur with everything that ben's saying but i was surprised when you said you wouldn't be too fussed if you didn't hear strange deja vu live because i thought that was maybe one of my favorites of metropolis yeah i remember i I definitely do love the track but i think 
I've been listening to Dream Theater for I think almost 12, 13 years now. And with 14 albums of music, uh, it wouldn't make my top 20 favorite songs of theirs. And I absolutely love it too. So, Okay, so then that's probably the different dynamics between the two of us because I'm fairly new to exploring Dream Theater. I actually listened to this album, Metropolis Part 2, years before, but because I wasn't quite fully paying attention to it, I kind of just brushed it off like, eh, it was okay. It, went it actually by, it took went the song by a little bit. Sorry? Oh, it, it, it probably just went by a little bit from what you were hearing, yeah. Yeah, Especially it actually took time. the song As I Am off Train of Thought to give him another shot. Yes, so, um, yes. But uh, now listening to it all the way through and really just immersing myself in this experience i'm t- i unfortunately i'm gonna go three nil here strange deja vu was probably top three top four off metropolis but that does nice. not that does not disservice mm. revolution calling in any way do seek that no. song out it's absolutely no. phenomenal it's it's so good that i've said the word absolutely on podcast for the first time in a very long time but strange deja vu with probably 10 different asterisks is, is going to get my point who knows if i'm going to regret that i might you never know. <laughs> okay. But this one, for me, at least, is a lot less of a contest. Scene three, part one, for Metropolis. Through my words versus the title track to Queensryche, Operation Mindcrime. So we head into the next track. In uh, Operation Mindcrime, uh, something really interesting begins to happen to our um, lead character, Nikki. Whenever uh, Dr. X uses the word Minecraft, Nikki becomes his puppet and Dr. X is pulling at the strings, making him do things. Um, And he commands Nikki to undertake any murder that Dr. X wishes, uh, which I think is such a uh, wonderful uh, idea that's happening. Um, And I love that it's happened so early on as well, because normally if you see this kind of thing in a, in a film or a television program that's something that would happen much later on um whereas in uh metropolis part two scenes from her me- from a memory in uh this next track we're introduced to another character uh, who's a very integral character in through my words as nicholas is uh, beginning to put the pieces together about who Victoria was. Um, he learns more about her through this new character, Julian Baines, um, who uh, is another lover. And because of his uh, drinking and gambling addictions, uh, Victoria begins to distance herself from him. Now, just before we move on, is Julian ever mentioned by name in the Metropolis album? What, what I believe is that Julian is mentioned um, in the CD insert, if you uh, have a look in there. So I believe okay. um, he's not mentioned by name, but in uh, the story that's given, uh, the band uh, give a bit more clarity to uh, who he is. Right. Okay. But uh, Ben, it's through my words, he's a one minute piano piano song in essence, isn't it? It's a one minute piano song in essence, but what I like about it is that when we opened the record with Regression, the focus was on James LeBrie singing with an acoustic guitar, but this time it's James LeBrie singing over a bit of light piano. It's very sporadic. It's not super busy uh, and it just flows. And James, for the most part, there's a little bit more energy here than there was in Regression. All your eyes have ever seen all you've ever heard it's nice um it it doesn't sound too forced too full-on 
Uh, and for the most part, I think it's perfect to guide us into Fatal Tragedy, which is a complete monster of a song. And again, just great pacing. One thing these two albums do really, really well musically, storytelling, is the pacing. I think that's partly why they're classic. Sometimes as a listener, we just need to breathe a little bit after things have been really hectic and crazy. And it makes those big moments so much more impactful when we do that. I think something that Dream Theater does particularly well is that it can very swiftly change between the big and grandiose and then go to that subtle downplay uh, so well. And that's why uh, I think Through My Words uh, does that eloquently. It is a very eloquent piece, I will grant you that. But do you know what? Uh, we'll, we'll discuss the Operation Mindcrime part because now I know you won't refuse. <laughs> phenomenal phenomenal pre-chorus and um i love you know just from dissecting what thomas just told the storyline wise and you know supporting it with the lyrics like you um there's a job for you in the system boy with nothing to sign great character development can't deny that to me it's a no contest really operation Mindcrime wins this very easily it absolutely does. And can we just say that riff, I'm a firm believer that every song needs to have a moment. And I think that opening riff immediately captures your attention. In fact, there is, there is so much character to that opening riff. And then you've got the bass pounding in the background over it. Uh, drums, again, pretty simplistic on this track. They kind of just play with it for the most part. But Jeff Tate, just again steals the show on this he is unbelievable and i agree operation mind crime is the way to go in the early voting for this one i'm feeling quite contrary i think whilst operation mind crime uh has so many elements that really uh lean into its advantages i think through my words um gets me hook line and sinker i'm a sucker for a good uh piano ballad and i think uh, this is done really beautifully. And I think uh, the story here gets really interesting for me. So my point's going to go to through my words. Interesting indeed. Very interesting indeed. Uh, as Operation Mindcrime of Queensryche uh, ends, we kind of return to that political rally that we heard in Anarchy X. And then you can ha- kind of hear a voice in the distance say, well, scream out really, hey, listen to me. And then it goes straight into speak which goes up against Fatal Tragedy. As we continue uh, to listen to Operation Mindcrime, the song of the same namesake uh, slams straight in to speak. Uh, In this track, um, as his position within Dr. X's organisation grows, uh, so does Nikki's ego and adherence to his master's vision of the future, which is really interesting uh, interplay there. Whereas in um, Metropolis Part 2, Scenes from My Memory, as we walk into uh, the next track, um, we learn how uh, Victoria sought comfort in Julian's brother, Edward Baines, and began to have an affair with him. Nicholas assumes that Julian murdered her out of jealousy and then killed himself, uh, which is a huge, I guess, term for the story to take. Um, to happen so early, only within Act 1 as well. Um, Two really interesting, I guess, lines of events happening here, boys. Very interesting to note with Speak of Operation Mindcrime, this is probably the closest you're ever going to hear Queenstrike sounding similar to Iron Maiden. I could imagine this track Mm. being on Power Slave, in fact. But if it was, I'm probably 
wouldn't rate it within the top eight songs on the album. It's not a bad track for the most part. It just kind of stays in that one lane the whole time. There's a bit of energy. Uh, the guitars are a bit, bit quicker than the previous tracks we've heard on the record. But I think if we're looking at the two tracks, Dream Theater really bring it home for me with Fatal Tragedy here. Firstly, we come out of the piano, the light piano from Through My Words, and then we get a nice heavy riff, drums that aren't playing overly quickly. And we've got this dual vocal melody kind of reminding me a little bit of Alice in Chains. Earlier on, I mentioned with Strange Deja Vu about a cheesy organ, which I want to correct myself. That appears on this track. Uh, forgive me, boys, but when it's such a great album, uh, it's really easy to get so many melodies and stuff kind of confused because it's just full of them. But uh, th this track is brilliant. And on the second half of it, it gets completely crazy thrash metal riffing almost. We've got double kick drums from Mike Portnoy, John Myung bringing it and Jordan Rudis adding in some brand new Dream Theater keyboard sounds and tones. This track, Jason, fair to say, it's pretty, pretty exciting, my word. Definitely a very exciting track. I, there, there's so much heavy riffage going on between Portnoy, Petrucci, but then with uh, Jordan Rudess on the keyboards and uh, a lot of uh, use of the, uh, that organ interlude you were telling me about, not only does it capture catch you off guard but you feel like you're listening to some sort of heavy metal church hymn you know definitely sure. i would agree with that there, there is a just odd kind of religious undertone to this song i've always thought that and that's really awesome you said that as well yeah and from a storytelling perspective tom uh that uh law of julian it was julian killing victoria out of jealousy due to an affair that was uh told through an old man of the town in this dream correct that is correct, which I think is a really interesting way that we hear this story told from an onlooker or it's secondhand information. Um, there's this kind of sense that it's some kind of folklore, uh, which I think really um, works well within the context of dream theatre. Whereas on contrary speak, it is a glorified recruitment process essentially, isn't it? Yeah, we're joining the Navy boys. <laughs> Even in Niage. Okay. Um, so just uh, based on uh, reading the room here, Ben, I would say uh, you're going to be taking Fatal Tragedy? I am. I think this is the first time I've gone for Dream, or maybe the second time I've gone for Dream Theatre so This will be your second point track. for Dream Theatre, yes. And this is uh, very well deserved. This track is one of the standouts on the record for me. Uh, Jot, I'm, I'm going to join you on that one. I'll take Fatal Tragedy as well. That was, uh, that was certainly a highlight in the oh. listening experience to that one? This one was tough for me because I really like Fatal Strategy. A lot happens in it and there's a lot to absorb and listen to, but there's something about Speak that just doesn't for me. I really like this track, so my point's going to go there. Okay. So with a little bit of a score check here, uh, for myself, Metropolis is in the lead four to one. For Ben, Mindcrime is in the lead three to two. Same thing for you there, Tom, EP of Art Smitten. Okay. We move on to scene four, and I believe this is the... No, this is the second last track of Act One at Metropolis Part Two. It's, the song is called Beyond This Life, and it is the first 10-minute-plus track, clocking in at about 11.22. And that goes up against a very underrated track, in my opinion, Spreading the Disease Off Mindcrime. There we uh, go. Sp spreading the Disease Off Mindcrime has to have probably my favourite chorus section of the whole record. 
uh, we, we've got another lady that sings with him and she also has that operatic kind of tone that he's got going for him. Spreading the disease. It's so, oh my word, it's infectious. I love it. And especially when I heard it live, uh, Jeff Tate's daughter actually walked on stage and sung this with him, which was quite interesting as well. Nice. Uh, it's That's it's really a great nice, track. Yeah. I, I do very much like it. However, Beyond This Life is an incredible achievement in the Dream Theatre discography. In fact, it's probably in my top three favourite Dream Theatre songs of all time. There's even a part in the solo section towards three quarters of the song, it sounds like something out of a Disney movie. I can't explain it. It's, it's, it's a little bit kind of cheesy, but it's awesome. But I, I really like how opening riff starts up. Captures your attention right away. Drumming, thrash metal drumming coming in. And then immediately we just go to this weird time change where we've got some really interesting, delicate bass work going on. Uh, a lot of uh, crazy syncopated uh, drum beats on the cymbals and uh, snare drum as well. And James Labrie even uses some different uh, vocal effects in production to make his voice kind of sound a little bit different. Uh, Tom, I'm guessing that's to act out another character throughout this segment of the song. I, 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 I do get that sense, yeah. I think that um, it does help to give um, the other character um, some, some of their own flesh, if you like. Um, and I think that works really well here. Yeah, it, it's, it's just tremendous. Jason, how do you even try to tackle describing a beast like this? It's 11 minutes 23. Um, yeah. What was kind of the key thing that won you over with this song more than anything? Oh, yeah. You know, when you were saying Disney movie, do you get that feeling just based off sometimes it might be the keys, it might be another instrument that they use. Um, it sounds very chimey. It sounds like something out of a xylophone. Yeah, I, I think I think it was almost a xylophone sound. It's definitely, and this is why uh, Jordan Rudis was such a game changer with the keyboard player Derek Sherinian. Everything pretty much had a fairly serious sound to it. Tracks like Peruvian Skies and so forth. And with Kevin Moore, who some people say that was their favorite Dream Theater keyboard player, he also stuck to pretty sensible sounding keyboard tones. But I feel as if Jordan kind of throws the rule book out the window. And he can sometimes use what you would maybe think is kind of a tacky sound. And yet it just works. It just works really strangely well. And I, I think that's part of the, the fire and the flame, the, the creativity of this record is they were willing to try anything with these songs. And somehow, some way, it was lightning in a bottle and it all just seemed to work. Not only that, vocal effects uh, is reciting essentially a news headline and that kind of at this point gives you the idea, oh yes, okay, so this is a sort of love story that has been torn apart resulting in a tragic murder. Not only that, uh, instrumentally I've seen here, there's uh, about a third of the way through, holy crap, that guitar solo by John Petrucci, shredderific, how amazing is that? And not only that, as the song goes on, there's this rock and rhythmic se section going on, but then the keys just sound all poppy and it makes you kind of like feel, you know, feel all fluttery. It's incredible. That, that's it. That, yeah. That's exactly <laughs> what I was referencing. Yeah. And then yeah. it progresses. I think I'm hearing trumpets at some point heading towards yes, the end correct. of the song. Trumpets do come in and that kind of adds to that Disney thing. I, I, yeah. For those listening, definitely check this track out and go, go towards the, uh, the kind of instrumental break, if you will, three quarters of the way through, you'll know what, what we mean. It's very, it's just very different, but yeah, it works really well. 
But in the meantime, spreading the disease, Tom, we are introduced to another very vital character to Operation Mindframe. That is Mary. What's her backstory? Just explain that to the listeners. So uh, Mary is a prostitute turned nun who uh, Nikki meets when uh, is, he's offered the services uh, by Sister Mary um, when he meets uh, Father William, who is a corrupt priest. Um, and through his friendship and growing affection towards Mary, Nippy, uh, Nikki uh, begins to question the nature of uh, what he's up to, what he's doing. Do, do you know what's really strange? How that is kind of the main plot point as we're discussing it. But when I was listening for the very first time, I was thinking the, the metaphor of spreading the disease was just spreading this anti-ideology of whatever they were fighting against. So it's a very different contrast to what my thinking was at the time to what it might actually be. Do you see any validity in that? It's it's interesting that you tap onto that because it could easily act as a bit of a double double entendre uh, because you have the political uh, scandal operating at the same time, whereas you have a lot of this internal uh, stuff happening as well with uh, Nikki's uh, own struggles that he has. And I think it's through Nikki that he realizes uh, what's going on for himself. And uh, if you want to, Ben, uh, break down that spoken word uh, section halfway through spreading the disease, because that that can grab your attention quite well as well. Definitely can. Um, Just another key thing that this group does really well is just the change in, in voice and in tone. And yeah, there's a spoken word segment here. And again, it kind of brings back that sense of eeriness. I think we've been rocking for quite a while for the last few tracks of this album and uh, you know, just trying to keep that story going and add again, uh, I say a great album is all about dynamics, adding in that extra element that we were missing for a few tracks. So I think that spoken word bit is actually uh, really awesome that it's placed there. And it reminds us, Oh yeah, this is a concept album. This isn't just a record full of rocking songs and catchy melodies. Uh, There's actually a full story going on there. And um, and just to break down more of the uh, the story aspect, Tom, uh, when you, how great is the connotation of uh, Mary becoming a prostitute into none? I'll just read some lyrics out for you. Sixteen and on the run from home, found a job in Times Square working live S and M shows, and then later on, Father William saved her from the streets. She drank the lifeblood from her save from the Savior's feet. She's Sister Mary now, eyes as cold as ice. He takes her once a week on the altar like a sacrifice. What literary techniques is that? That's it's it's very deep, and I love that. Um, there's this idea that Sister Mary has a whole life that we haven't seen, and I think that really works very nicely in Nikki's favor because Mary is a corrupt character. She's had her own flaws and um, mistakes along the way, and I think that really uh, leans into what Nikki is experiencing in the current world, I think two and two work really nicely together. And I think I also really like the fact that um, Mary is a female character, whereas a lot of mental characters are often male figures. It's nice to kind of have a bit of difference in there. I think that works really well. And with that being said, gentlemen, now we have to decide this one's tough. It really is. Yeah. I think for myself, um, the, the more I think about the story and I think the more I think about what's going on, 
Um, it's it, it's really difficult this one because Fatal Strategy does so much, um, and it really I think is uh, such a tour de force for Dream Theater as uh, we've uh, sung so highly. It's one of their best songs, and um, for the case of Operation Mindcrime. There's a lot happening here. Um, we're meeting new characters and there's a lot of um, breakup in the agenda. We have that spoken monologue. But for me, I think it's going to be up to um, Fatal Strategy. Uh, beyond This Life, you mean? Yes, Beyond This Life. For me, it's going to be Beyond This Life. Yeah, that's the third. That, that ties you up three all, Tom. As tremendous as the vocal hook is in spreading the disease, and it really is that good. It always makes me smile every time I hear it. I don't know if it's the dual vocals or what's going on there. Uh, it just catches my ear. Uh, Beyond This Life is just completely stunning, start to finish. What I think would have been really interesting, and it's such a shame that the track listing didn't allow us to do this comparison, but I think uh, Sweet Sister Mary versus Beyond This Life would have been such an interesting comparison. Both of them clock in at about 11 minutes, and I'm not sure which way it would have gone. I would have had to really think about it. But I'm going to have to go with Beyond This Life because it probably is the track of the record. Big take there from Ben. Uh, this conversation made me more of a fan of Spreading the Disease because I think it was a bit more middle of the road when I first listened to it, but becoming more of a fan. Thanks for this conversation, but my God, Beyond This Life, there's so much going on. You can't not take it. It's just brilliant. Qu quality song beyond this life, be sure. Uh, as Ben recommended right at the start of this conversation, that's one to seek out. Okay, next up, Through Her Eyes versus The Mission. Uh, this track, Ben, Through Her Eyes, at the very beginning, it sounds like their channel, Dream Theater's channeling, channeling their own Great Gig in the Sky by Pink Floyd. I can kind of hear that, actually. Yeah, this is kind of a slower plotting ballad for Dream Theater. And controversial take i actually think this is probably one of the weakest songs on the record now firstly i love ballads i love light songs i'm, I'm a big fan of them however the spirit carries on which is going to come in later i think is a perfect example of how you make it completely tremendous along with uh finally free is a pretty lighter track too but through a rise to me i think is more heavy on storyline continuity than actually offering anything overly interesting on the record in fact i probably could have done without it on the album if we wanted to just cut a little bit of time however the mission is very very interesting firstly it's one of the more intriguing songs it's a bit of a slow burn and i really love how jeff tate over this really nice light uh guitar line is not giving his full vocal range we're used to him going ah! but here he's gonna talk he's using his lower range it works very, very nicely. And then when the song kicks in the gear, we get just electricity, heavy guitar riffs, lovely drumming. It's really awesome then to kind of hear Jeff Tate unleash. And it just makes you go, my word, he is a fantastic vocalist, just in case it wasn't obvious already. Both tracks are fun, but for me, it's pretty obvious where I'm going to lean on this one. So should we just call it now, The Mission? The Mission for me. Yeah, that's correct. All right. Tom, where do you stand and where are we at right now? There's two really interesting uh, cans of worms being uh, slit right open here. I think the, the mission has a real sense of um, this is what's happening now and this is what we're going to do. Um, 
and listening and reading um, the lyrics now again, um, you get that real sense of that. Uh, whereas I think Through Her Eyes, um, as been touched on, does something really different for Dream Theater. It has that kind of ballad tone to it. Um, and I love that this idea that like, it's, it's still so focused on the past and it's very like this distant image. I love the idea that she never had a chance and uh, now that we're becoming aware, there's so much, uh, I guess that um, Nicholas is engaging with here that we engage with as an audience as well. So uh, through her eyes, that's where my vote's gonna go. Mm, okay. Uh, it, it, from an engagement point, yeah, you're kind of starting to think, yeah, okay, now Nicholas is in direct communication with Victoria and now he's starting to, he, he's quite literally doing what the title is saying and that he's beginning to see Victoria's world through himself. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 would, I would absolutely agree. And I think that definitely becomes relevant here as well. Okay. Now, <laughs> for some reason, I'm, I'm, now, I'm now deciding the battle between these two and... Uh, You've both offered very good, uh, good arguments here. Ah, through her eyes, that channeled an inner Pink Floyd that I really loved, like the majestic singing of that lady voice, which we could probably say that's Victoria, correct? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Whereas the mission, that really does sound like, Jeff, for the first half at least, does sound like Jeff Tate singing in the middle of a shrine in, in the midst of a massive chapel or a church. Um, do you know what? I, I think, Jason, um, my final sales pitch for you, I think the mission is just more of a complete song. I think there's more twists and turns that go on throughout it. I think it builds really nicely and it progresses really in, into a really interesting vocal melody and hook. The guitar works brilliant. Whereas I think uh, Through Her Eyes kind of just gets caught in first gear and it never really gets out of it. But it's a nice song to kind of relax to and chill out to. And it also lets the album breathe at a pivotal moment. So the choice is yours. Okay. I disagree with the thought, the thought that through our eyes is the, the lesser of the ballads. I think it's better than let's say through my words. And I think it is a, it is a much better, much better song than I think at least, at least that I think that you made it out to be, but you know what? I will take the mission. Why not? Let's, let's take the mission. It is a, a, a joyous song. Let's say intriguing to the story. Uh, for Metropolis, that means we've now concluded Act 1, really. So uh, let's move on to Act 2 then. Uh, the next one, it's also another 10-minute-plus track, Home versus the longest track of Operation Mindcrime, and I think the best, let's put it, let's be blunt here, Sweet Sister Mary. Um, this is a completely tremendous comparison. Firstly, we're dealing with two very epic-sounding songs. The first time ever, I think, Dream Theater have sound at least like they're not trying to rip off, but you can tell there's a, there's a huge Alison Chains influence going on on this track home, especially in those vocal melodies, my word, uh, huge, heavy sounding riff on this one. Uh, it, it funnily enough got uh, appeared on the dream theater greatest hits record, although they called it greatest hit plus 21 other pretty cool songs. Cause the band only ever had one hit song, which is quite <laughs> funny. Uh, put um, me under, right? Yeah, correct. Yes. 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 <laughs> So that, it's, it's Home is a great track. Uh, it kind of gets a little bit Middle Eastern in the solo work towards it the does. second half. really yeah, like that. Song. Um, again, bombastic drums all the way through. Uh, really great chord structure, melody. It's, it's brilliant. But we got to quickly mention 
Sweet Sister Mary, which, my word, if is there a song better to listen to in the dark when it's raining? I actually can't think of one. It reminds me that the opening guitar work reminds me quite a lot of uh, Sleepless Nights by King Diamond, which if you haven't heard that record, it's really good. Um, otherwise, uh, yeah, th th this track has a lot of layers. There's even parts where uh, the second vocalist, that's not Jeff, uh, Sister Mary herself kind of takes uh, quite a few lines and they're really intriguing. They're sung beautifully. And for the most part, there's just such a sense of intrigue, eeriness and wonder in this song. And it doesn't feel like it goes for 10 minutes, 41. It is just amazing, Jason. It's treacherous. It's haunting from a melodic point of view. It's got a damn great choir. And uh, another thing that you could hear probably, and probably another heavy metal church in, let's put it that way. Let's make that the theme of the show. And uh, it all begins with the line from Dr. X. We hear an appearance from Dr. X saying, telling Nikki, kill her, kill sister Mary and kill the priest too. Tom, when I first listened to this, I thought sister Mary was going to get murdered by Nikki in this point. Like I, I, I thought during at least maybe three minutes in, or maybe it might've even been five minutes in, uh, there was a either there might have been signs of great peril, but I think there might be something contrary to that there. There is a great sense of power play here, and I love that we get to hear Dr. X here. There's this real uh, menacing uh, tone that I love. Um, and I love like the way that the story unfolds as well, and I guess the idea of metal church. Uh, is so fantastic as well. I think uh, rhythmically it works so beautifully. But I guess in the story, what I really like about um, Sweet Sister Mary is uh, the fork in the road that it takes um, when um, Dr. X says that you need to kill the priest and kill Sister Mary. There's this struggle for Nikki um, and he ends up committing half the task he kills uh the priest and it's this huge moment uh which i absolutely love i think there's a lot of attention that's drawn to this uh would you agree uh, i thought um it was kind of, i thought the father williams uh murder was kind of skipped upon it was just mentioned in a passing into the lyric as he's trying to kind of beg mary to come with her with nikki to escape mm. Because there's that metaphor, yeah. his cross is gone and he, he is gone cold, that kind of thing. Father William is gone cold and his cross is gone. You must come with me or something like that because they're after you too. I, I, I love that, like, it's, it, it goes so swiftly in the sense of, like, it, it's all happening now because it feels like an event in real time, which I think is so, I guess, real in the sense of what's going on. And I think when I first listened to this, and heard that I had to go, wait, what? And then I went back and listened to that bit again and realised what had happened and gone, okay. And it feels very authentic to that. Okay. And uh, on the contrary, what's happening in home? In home, um, Nicholas uh, begins to understand uh, the effects of the gambling uh, which uh, distance him uh, from Victoria. There's this um, real, I guess, um, sad romance in the lyrics. Um, 
as he struggles with this. And I think that's um, something that's really attractive about it. You can kind of hear it happening around halfway through home. Cause if you, for example, if you had your headphones on listening to the song home about halfway through um, in one channel, you do hear a casino in at work. Like you hear the slot yeah. machines, you do hear what's going on on one side. And on the other, on the other side, you're hearing, uh, well, let, let's not beat around the bush intimacy taking place very intimate yeah. moment happening so is that what you're kind of getting at as the uh, conflict taking place yeah very much so i think um you, you, you think about these things that um, are so i guess that there is a thing that pulls you in to engage within that activity and there's a sense of uh luring and having those things so focal and there really makes you feel for Nicholas and his situation. You become very in his head about it. And I think when you think of these things in real life, like gambling, um, it's, it's very easy to understand that from the outer. But I think uh, looking at it from this point of view, which the song depicts, I think is so, um, yeah, that, that there's something really interesting about that. Just to, I was interested in also providing this uh, uh, other uh, interpretation because I, I, this is another interpretation I also did think of. Do you think in that moment where you're hearing the uh, cas- the casino environment on one side and uh, an intimate intimate sex scene essentially in the other, could you also is it possible that you could interpret that as you're hearing the affair taking place? Oh, definitely. It it, it could definitely be that memory because i think i i I think one of the beautiful things about this is that you can interpret it as either or you could interpret it as uh things happening in the present and that could be a um catalyst for him remembering the affair that occurred previously so two and two could really work in and in the same element if that makes sense all right now I think we might need to come to a conclusion. Are there any arguments for either side, Ben, that you'd like to get in? I think either way you go, comparing both these tracks, uh, completely respectful either way. I, I can understand some people might lean more towards the heaviness of home, the kind of late 90s grunge vibes that are throughout the track as well, along with um, almost some visual audio, if that makes any sense. You you can really just feel and kind of picture what's going on throughout that track. Uh, but Sweet Sister Mary, on the other hand, it, it, it was just Halloween last week. It's the perfect kind of Halloween sounding song to me. Um, eerie and just so cool. I love it so much. And the rain, nice touch. So I have to go with Sweet Sister Mary on this yeah. one. Yeah. The he- it's it's such a heavy song home Labrie adding that extra soaring feel as a nice contrast and just the all around eastern sound you said at the start it's so good on home but I in all honesty I think Sweet Sister Sweet Sister Mary is the best song off Operation Mindcrime and uh, I'm gravitating towards it with you Ben I think when I got to see Jeff Tate sing through that whole Operation Mindcrime album in February. I remember Sweet Sister Mary played and everyone was kind of just in awe for the 11 minutes. No one was talking to each other. No one was bumping around. Everyone kind of just sat back, took it in. And it was really just a crazy standout moment of the night. 
yeah, the, the, there is that sense to um, Sweet Sister Mary, which I really admire as well. And I think you just have to kind of step back and appreciate it for what it is. And home as well, I think, is a cacophony of sounds that you just have to take in a few times as well. Um, but I think for me, Sweet Sister Mary is the way to go. We're all in agreement there. All three of us are taking Sweet Sister Mary. Not a disparagement on home. Fantastic track, I can tell you right now. But um, all three of us are going to be taking Sweet Sister Mary there. And that rounds out our store, our scores into a very interesting playing field. For myself, Metropolis Part 2 leads 5-3. to three. For Ben, uh, Metropolis Part 2 trails 3-5. to five, Where Tom, it is 4-all. Interesting contest taking place right here. Moving on now to Metropolis's The Dance of Eternity, which is part one of scene seven, going up against The Needle Lies from Mindcrime. Now, The Dance of Eternity, Ben, is an instrumental track, the second one going. Dance of Eternity is an instrumental track, Jason, and it's actually the key song to test out whether you could drum for Dream Theatre or not. This was one of the three songs that was used. (laughs) when the band finally settled on uh, Mike Mangini back in 2009 or 2010. Gosh, it's been a while. And this song is, I think, while incredibly technical and creative, I can't help but feel it's probably a little overly long. It loses a little bit of momentum uh, throughout. And this is a common complaint of Dream Theatre fans that a lot of them have an opinion that the first five records were the golden age And after that, they kind of went off into longer songs, more soloing, uh, a little bit more self-indulgent in that sense, perhaps. Maybe the songs kind of lost a bit of merit because they just soloed too long. Look, it's all up for debate. I love it all personally. However, Dance of Eternity is kind of that idea in an instrumental track. And it was definitely a point in history where we kind of saw Jordan's influence and what he was going to do with the band moving forward. With The Needle Lies, again, we get back to a, a rocker which kind of reminds me a little earlier of Speak. I said the Iron Maiden kind of sound. I guess it's, it's back a little bit in this context, but for the most part, uh, either way you go, they're two completely different songs. These songs sound absolutely nothing alike. They're on opposite ends of the spectrum. Hear, hear. Tom, how does The Dance of Eternity as an instrumental track progress the story? So in The Dance of Eternity, we find out Edward feels guilty about being deceitful towards his brother, but decides that his love for Victoria uh, is greater than his guilt, and he seduces her in when she is vulnerable following her breakup, which I guess is The Dance of Eternity, which is um, a really interesting idea to kind of play with, um, it, 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 it works well, though, but as uh, Ben says, it does kind of pander on for a while. Um, but in a story aspect, it's uh, very interesting. It's something that you would kind of expect in a very erotic moment of a film. <laughs> how, but I'm just interesting. How do you convey that plot point with no, with no lyrics? I, I think it's... You, you, you really got to rely on uh, the power of the instrument to tell the story. And I think what this does here is uh, kind of gives that idea that there's this power of seduction happening. Um, and I think through that, you can identify that, okay, something is happening on this front, which I really like. 
uh, admittedly, this song is all over the place. There's so much going on. There's massive piano breaks. There's a massive bass break. It's a bit of a piano solo, which actually is very carny. That doesn't sound anything like it, but it, you get what I mean. It's very carny. But it builds, it releases, it builds. It's There's so much to unpack, unpack and it's such a mind-blowing experience. It's, it almost kind of blows the needle eyes out of the water, which, in fairness, is a bit of a disservice to the needle eyes because that's definitely a top track in my mind. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I just personally felt Dance of Eternity was more a sampler of, hey, this band can play and they're super talented. Just not one of my favourite Dream Theater instrumentals. When you think of tracks like Erotomania, which is just such a brilliant instrumental piece off Awake, uh, Awake being the darkest Dream Theater record, I just feel as if the Dance of Eternity almost might be slightly out of place on this album maybe just a little bit. It's kind of like, it sticks out to me as kind of like the odd track out, but I know it's a fan favorite and I can definitely appreciate that for sure. But yeah, I'm going to have to go the Neil Lies. I, I just love it. I, I love the hook on it. Um, fun guitar work. It's a rocking tune. It's good stuff. What I think is really interesting about the Needle Lies is that um, we head to this um, ultimatum that Dr. X uh, gives Nikki. Um, he commits his love towards Mary and decides to leave the organization with her. Um, so what happens is Nikki goes to tell Dr. X uh, that they're not going to be a part of it anymore, that they're out. But Dr. X reminds him that if you go, you're going to go back to this bleak old life that you had before where you're a helpless addict. And I think it kind of leaves Nikki in a bit of dismay at the same time when he's trying to do something good. There's something even worse kind of around the corner. Yeah. As much as it's a very key plot point, I think I'm still going to take Dance of Eternity. I still think that song blows it out of the water, but it's because there's so much going on. You can't look away for the Dance of Eternity. What do you take, Tom? I, I, I think I have to agree with you, boys. I think whilst uh, on a narrative front, The Needle Lies is uh, very intriguing. I think rhythmically, The Dance of Eternity is just such a wild trip. So yeah, uh, Tom and I are both taking the Dance of Eternity, you know, monster of a track, but uh, that doesn't, sh- that shouldn't be any disservice to The Needle Lies because it is, it is a very important song in accordance to the story and y- it gives you that vibe of uh, connoting some someone is on the run, I guess, just by its fast nature. It's got a flashier guitar riff than you think. Normally it would be like a standard chord or something like that, but no, it goes... That's obviously not the riff, clearly because I have bad memory when it comes to memorizing riffs. But, um, you know, if you get what I mean, it's, it's very flashy. It's very fast paced. You feel like you're on the run. Moving on now to, uh, we're heading into the final stages of uh, Metropolis Part 2, actually with the song One Last Time, which is part two of uh, Scene 7, which engulfs uh, Dance of Eternity as well as One Last Time. One Last Time goes up against Electric Requiem, where we've discovered something very terrible happening, haven't we, Tom? Yeah, two very terrible things have happened. Um, in um, in Electric Requiem, what happens is after this confrontation with Dr. X, Nikki leaves conflicted, uncertain, and he returns only to find Mary dead and deceased, which is um, a huge cliffhanger moment, which I love. And for an instrumental track, it, there's a sense of huge dismay, which I really like about this. Uh, whereas in uh, One Last Time, 
the pieces of the puzzle begin to uh, form together and create a bigger picture. Uh, Nicholas is getting a greater idea of what's happened and he's figured out that Julian had tried to beg Victoria for forgiveness and when rebuffed, killed both her and Edward and positioned himself as the one despite the pleas from Victoria's memories. So there's, um, it, it's kind of become a whodunit um, and we get a greater idea of what's actually gone down. Hmm. In spite of the evidence, there's something still missing. Ben? I think it... I think it's um, completely fascinating on a 15-track record by Queensryche. Five of these songs are actually interludes or intros, meaning there's only 10 full proper songs on the album. Uh, This is another one, Electric Requiem. And for the most part, uh, it's got a really cool guitar melody going on, really interesting line. Again, we've got that heavy 80s synth and drums that uh, he's using all the toms and they're bouncing around, especially if you listen to this thing on headphones, it's bouncing all around you to kind of maybe disorientate the listener or kind of take you into a bit of another world. Like, oh, gee, I'm unsure what's going on. Uh, interesting little track to keep, obviously, the, um, the, the album rolling and uh, keeping it intriguing. And with one last time with Dream Theatre, uh, it's only about a three-minute track. And this, this may sound a little odd, uh, and I'm not joking when I say this, I could actually imagine Savage Garden singing this song. I could imagine Darren Hayes' vocals over this, over the everything about it, the hook, the melody. Um, it's actually quite a nice track, honestly. It's quite relaxing to listen to. It just sounds good on the ears. And it's uh, one thing this album does really well is that they'll bring back different solos and reuse them later in the record, which is what they do here. That's actually a solo out of Overture uh, 1928 that comes in here midway through, but he just adds that tiny little bit of, um, a a tiny bit of change on it, gives it his own kind of spice and a bit of extra flavor to make it feel a little bit different than the first time we heard it. But it's trying to reference earlier memories that were going on. When getting to this point of the album, without without going fully in depth of the uh, backstory of the murder, what is your first reaction when you think, oh gosh, there's a hole in the case? Maybe who 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 was allegedly the killer initially? Was Julian? Was it yeah. Edward? Julian is initially it, it, considered the killer. So how how did you react when you when the idea is put into our heads that maybe the roles are reversed? Edward is the killer, and Julian is the uh, um, is framed the right word? Yeah, yeah, it absolutely is. Like I love the idea that. Um, in any story is not everything is what it seems. And I think that this album plays into that really well. As the story progresses, we get more and more information, but we need to realise like how much of it is true, how much of it is, um, I guess, cotton wool over our eyes, it is. Um, and I think that's definitely an exhibit of that here, which I really like. Right. So now we've got to come up with, uh, oh, who's going to take the point here? I think for me personally, it'll be one last time, just based on a storytelling point, based on the fun, ballady nature of it, the the mystery going forward, where Electric Requiem, uh, booming drums, I'm glad you made a point of that, Ben, booming drums, and that atmosphere is so twisted. It is so twisted and creepy and dingy. But uh, I think think the... uh, you know, things like that little prancing piano part at the end, that, I think that kind of tips it over the edge for me for one last time, you know? Yeah, I agree. I think one last time is 
really, really awesome. And it's kind of one of the hidden gems on the album that doesn't get talked about as much, which is a shame because I think it kind of bookends definitely into the next track, which is probably one of their best ballads ever, The Spirit Carries On. I think those two complement each other so perfectly. So it's brilliant stuff as we come to the last 15 minutes of the record. One final question for you, Tom, storytelling-wise about One Last Time. Is this a direct uh, a direct interaction between Nicholas and Victoria lyrically in this song? I think... The, the, the way I listen to it, 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 it could definitely be that, but I feel like it's almost uh, Nicholas almost kind of talking to himself and out into the open air as if Victoria was there. Okay. Um, that, that, that's what he will be saying. Um, and there's this kind of memory there, but I, I, I feel like very much that Nicholas is very solitary in this um, being the one last time. I think that... Um, has this sense of um, alone, uh, which I really, I, I, I think is what, what I hear when I listen to it. Okay. Uh, so Ben, have you decided on one last time as the point, or have you got another point to make with electric requiem that could swing it? I think as far as uh, intro tracks go or interludes, uh, electric requiem is probably one of the best, but one last time is just uh, uh, honestly for the vocals i think is why i like one last time so much i just think just sound really really nice and excellent it's great it's very smooth too very much so very much so okay so that's a point to ben for metropolis part two tom where do you land i think electric requiem does it for me whilst i love the lyrics of one last time as uh ben tapped on i think uh this sense of that there's a real keystone in the journey that's been placed here electric requiem really places that impactful nature on the gravitas and the drama hey yeah that's it okay uh we'll do a quick score check as we're heading into the final stages um for myself metropolis is still in the lead seven to three which is quite quite a ratio i i was i had a inkling that maybe metropolis might be pulling away before we started but i think and i think that might be realized tonight operation mind crime leads for ben at six to four whereas tom denham our, our special guest of ep of art smitten it is five all if this state if this continues on its trajectory tom and it ends in a draw your grand points get a split in two <laughs> which we shall see who knows time, time maybe we'll- shall tell Maybe the grand point will be split in half when we might see a draw. You never know. But uh, Ben's been alluding to this throughout the entire podcast. The spirit carries on what you've been saying is the best ballad they've ever done. I think, I think it's probably up there. Maybe it is the last two minutes of that Neil Sean-like journey solo. It, it, it sounds a lot like journey, that solo. I think that's why I love it so much. A lot of heart, a lot of soul, and to be honest, you just feel it's very uplifting, this track. I can't explain it. You just feel good listening to it. You feel like you need to get up and do something, um, feel compelled to just spread some goodwill around. Uh, it's quite simple in design, this track, for the most part. But the instrumentation on it is brilliant. The vocals, James does a great job here. I really love everything he does. And it's just a great time. I really love this track. I think it's... Dream Theatre, a bit more stripped back, not going for as much craziness. 
and just kind of keeping in their lane a little bit, uh, taking the gas, taking the foot off the gas pedal, if you will, and just kind of keeping it together and putting together, in my opinion, a really, really uh, nice, solid ballad. Uh, on the other hand, breaking the silence, it's probably the closest uh, Queen track get to doing kind of 1980s adult orientated rock. If people are wondering what that is, bands like Foreigner, um, among many, many others that just have those kind of classic 1980s pop melodies with a little bit of rock, uh, can be 80s fusion as well. But it's a bit like Bon Jovi a little bit in this and maybe yeah, in the next absolutely. track too. Even, um, definitely I could also say even some glam rock sounds like this as well. Definitely in its mm. most commercial front. So yeah, I mean, it's obvious for me which way I'm going to go with this one, but Tom, I'm curious, uh, where, where are you at with the story and how is it progressing along? So in the spirit carries on the narrative, uh, interestingly goes to Edward's perspective where we've seen Julian's and now it goes to Edward's revealing that he wished his romance was more than just an affair with Victoria. Um, as Victoria begins to reconcile with Julian again, Edward confronts the two of them, murders them, then stages a scene and assumes the role of the witness for the newspaper column, which is very intriguing. That bastard. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Um, The flashback includes Edward telling Victoria to open her eyes before killing her, echoing the same choice of words the hypnotherapist uses to wake Nicholas from Isn't that addressed in the next track, by the way, Tom? It is, yeah. Because at this point we're only realizing, like it's it's kind of uh, it, I'm not sure if it's Nicholas or if it's um, uh, Julian, but someone is at peace with uh, you know, with especially like our spirit goes on after death. Yeah, yeah. So um, as this uh, track, I guess, goes on, it's uh, very much that moment of um, uh, the death of Victoria, and uh, then going into Nicholas, I think is. Um, yeah, that there's there's something as Ben touched on. There's something uh, very um, huge about this, but very uh, surreal as well. Uh, uh, on the contrary, breaking the silence. So as we realised um, in what happened in Electric Requiem, uh, Nikki can't cope with the loss of Mary, and insanity begins to ensue. Uh, he runs down the streets, uh, calling uh, Mary's name. Um, and I think there's something very, um, there's, there's, there's something very, oh, what, what's the word I'm looking for? I, I, I think I'm trying to find a greater word than insane. Um, ah. that, um, that there's, there's this madcap nature that we experience with Nikki as he uh, comes to the, the loss of Mary. Um, and there's this kind of, rhythm that goes with it which i think works really well okay yeah it's a complete grief song that's all that's what it is pretty much summed up solo wise that's pretty manic it's also probably another piece that you could describe as a soundtrack to being on the run yeah i would agree yeah whereas uh, uh actually ben if uh i could get your opinion on this part of the spirit carries on i've i think this has been a bit of a recurring theme of the heavy metal church hymn I think the spirit carries on, takes the icing on the cake here. Oh, I think it does too. Um, one thing I will mention as well on this track, I, I love that James goes up an octave in, towards the end of this song as if he's kind of had that sudden realisation, he's worked it out. Uh, it's just a 
eureka kind of moment. It's these subtle little stylistic changes that I love in songwriting. And I think it's what Dream Theater do so well is they can always tell when just to add that extra little bit of something to really make take that song to the next level. It's, it's, it's a feel-good track. It really is. And I think it, it comes it, it, at track 10 of the record out of 12, it, it hits perfectly at the right time. Yeah. And actually, I thought I'd just uh, uh, run this by Tom. I think there are a few uh, callbacks and paying off from previous moments in the album at Metropolis that is displayed on The Spirit Carries On. For example, uh, I think it's back in... It's either fate, fateful, Fatal Tragedy or... Uh, beyond this life. I think it's, I think it's after fatal tragedy where the hypnotherapist, you hear him talk about death isn't the end, but merely a transition that gets paid off in a lyric of the spirit carries on. And I think there's even some callbacks to the song through our eyes there. Yeah, this is a really lovely binding of the continuity that's happening. And it really gives a great sense of unison to the whole experience of listening to this album as a whole which i really like well i think i think we've sung our praises for it so much i think we'll just uh get right to it i think it sounds like all three of us are taking the spirit carries on would i be right in saying that i think you're right yeah absolutely all right we're all taking the spirit carries on that it it is a stellar track and you know what even if that was the final track it would work but it doesn't We still have one more to go and it is a 12 minute song and it is the final track of Metropolis part two, finally free. And that goes up against operation mind crimes. I don't believe in love following this. We still have three more songs off operation mind crimes. So the gold star rule will kick in, but let's compare the final track of Metropolis part two. And uh, I don't believe in love the, uh, probably let's say we're about two thirds, three quarters of the way through operation Minecraft. So Tom, where are we at when we get to, I don't believe in love. So when we get to, uh, I don't believe in love, um, Nikki has been confronted by the police and they're going to take him in, in suspicion of the murder of Mary and everybody else who is murdered um, under the influence of Dr. X which I think is um, a great turning point um, in the story. You, you wonder when this is going to happen and when Nikki is going to have to face his crimes. Um, but this kind of um, crossroads of the murder of Mary as well, I think is a really nice kind of uh, tipping up the iceberg here as well. Uh, whereas in um, Finally Free, Uh, We come back into the present uh, where Nicholas arrives home, uh, followed by the hypnotherapist and uh, Nikki. And uh, Nicholas is startled by another request to open his eyes before the album cuts. Yes, we should just uh, emphasize, Finally Free does start in the uh, return to the hypnotherapist's office office and uh the hypnotherapist does ask him you are returning to present you will return to regular life open your eyes nicholas and he wakes up so that's what uh tom's getting at there so once the uh nicholas returns home he hears another open your eyes nicholas and he does get startled yeah yeah which i think is a really lovely kind of play on the idea of what's real and what's not um and i think it even startled me when i re-listened to this um i think um, there's a real sense of um, interplay with the story here. Mm. And the reason why uh, the opening, open your eyes, uh, 
that name line is so prominent here is that during the track of final finally three, I think we do hear the murder taking place, don't we? Yeah, we do. So, and it is culminated with, uh, it is now strongly suggested that Edward is in fact the killer, correct? Yeah. So what we do here is that there's a fight that does break out between Julian and Edward. And uh, eventually uh, you hear shots being fired and then a, 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 la- a loud scream, probably coming from Victoria. Then you hear the line, open your eyes, Victoria, Sh- shots fired. And then we return to continue the rest of the song. So that, that actually leads into some interesting um, dynamic, doesn't it, Tom? It, it, it really does. And I think that, um, that idea that um, everything is happening at once it's, 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 it's really got to wrap your hand around it. I had to listen to this track a couple of times to really get an idea of like what was happening because it was so quick fire uh, without pun intended. Um, but I think I, I, I love this idea that the words open your eyes, Victoria comes from um, the killer and then it comes back into um, the hypnotherapist's um, room that Nicholas is in. I think uh, for the most part, it's very interesting. I mean, immediately uh, when Finally Free does begin, you are now surrounded by a brilliant white light. And then you get this nice little acoustic bit that opens it up for us. Yes. And then I think from there on, we um, start to build quite interestingly into his walk towards the house. Now there's actually, uh, and I'm not sure, Jason, if you're familiar with Banjo-Kazooie, from the Nintendo 64, but there's a part that's just, it sounds like you're walking towards Grunty's dungeon. Um, okay. I know that's incredibly nerdy, but every time I hear that bit, I think of it. Um, this track is actually quite funky, especially in the first three to four minutes. James puts on again, another really nice vocal performance and it gets completely out of control. Tom, fair to say it's pretty wild. There's a lot of yelling and shouting and there's gunfire and there's just complete unrest going on throughout the whole thing. And I don't know about you guys, but how this album ends, uh, it's very disorientating and it's pretty full on in the eardrums. Uh, and it's definitely a bit of a, a bit of a mind trip, if, if, if I may say so. I would agree, yeah. Yeah, it, it ends on very, very much confusion too. There's a lot of confusion. You get very confused. What? Hang on. Open your eyes. What? What's? What's this? Stat- record scratch. Static. Just ends. Yeah, yeah. There's there's something very chilling about that. What What's really cool about the static is that Dream Theater actually uh, made their records begin and end. So if this makes sense, Six Degrees of Inner Turbulence begins with the static. And then the last note of that album then connects to uh, Train of Thought. And then the end of Train of Thought connects to the start of Octavarium. I know that's really crazy, but if you really? were to... Yeah, if you were to hit the album on play in a discography run-through, it would all run together for multiple albums at a time, which is quite a fun little fact. Wow. Um, talking about confusing and strange, I don't believe in love. All of a sudden starts to make me wonder, was I listening to a progressive rock album or not? Because this is another ballady rock song that's a lot more conventional for Queen Shrike. It's not to say it's a bad song. I quite love it. Uh, the, the line, I don't believe in love. Everyone sings it live. It works. People cheer and sing that one. It's great. Um, really nice light guitar tone. I don't compliment it enough. The, the guitar work on this record 
has such a such a wonderful tone to it and I, I think it comes across here the bass it's always audible it's nice and clear and with the drums uh, one thing I will mention I think the snare drum on this record is a little harsh it's quite high pitched it's quite digital it's it's very sharp uh, I guess I'm just so used to it now but I think if we're comparing snare drum sounds I'd give it the dream theater and I would also give dream theater uh, the merit of finishing their record really, really strong in a really crazy way. It's a perfect ending to the story and it is a better track than I Don't Believe in Love. So that's where the point lies, Ben? That's where the point lies. That is where the point lies. Uh, Tom, where does your point lie? I mean, for me, I don't believe in love. I was interested when you said stand, or when you said prog rock track, it just felt like a standard 80s arena rock track. Like it was almost borderline a Bon Jovi song, but not that I'm complaining fun song to listen to rock and song to listen to. Um, but finally free, there's so many layer upon layers of piece of storytelling and intriguing instrumentation. I forgot to even mention, I think there's a one last time callback as well in finally free. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was, I was actually really torn when I thought about these two, because I think I don't believe in love takes a really interesting turn. Um, and I think it's the turn that, really kind of leans into the idea again that Nikki is an anti-hero that he's not liked that he's not someone that you're going to favor uh whereas in finally free everything's kind of coming full circle again um i think both really uh capture a wonderful continuity but for me as great as a song as finally free is i think it's going to have to go to um it's going to have to go to I Don't Believe in Love. Not going to lie. Quite surprised by that, actually. Because I, I, I thought it was a bit lesser of a contest. Finally free, just based on the layer upon layer of storytelling and how intriguing it is instrumentally. And, you know, we, you, you hear the murder. You do hear the murder. And it ends on a very, very confusing note. And it makes you, you know, do research. Like, it makes me have conversations with you guys. Like, one of the reasons why I have, I'm doing this podcast because the ending to Metropolis part two is that intriguing. It is. And I do wonder as music lovers and fans, does all this storytelling sometimes hurt wanting to come back to the record? If we solely just wanted to listen to some rock songs, I understand that's not really the idea of this piece, but mm. you know, the finally free, for example, the song probably as a whole would be four to five minutes, but with all the storytelling and theatrics that are thrown in, uh, we get to 12 minutes in length. Does that hurt your experience at all, Jason, if you wanted to kind of keep coming back to listening to this? Or is this the key selling point for you? And Tom, I invite you into that as well, that question. For me personally, uh, Finally Free would be something you'd be in the mood for, just per on a personal level. It'd be, you'd be in the mood for Finally Free. Let's enjoy the story again and go all the way through. If I wanted to pick out songs just to rock out to, you know, there'd be other songs, you know, for example, a strange deja vu or a fatal tragedy or uh, maybe, maybe even home for, for instance, hell through her eyes. If you want a moving ballad and same thing with uh, operation Minecraft, you can do revolution calling title track itself. Hell sweet sister Mary. It, that's a good short story in itself. Definitely for sure. Yeah. I, I think if I was to, go into listen to this as a standalone. I think knowing the context of the story before is hugely important, but I think there are times where 
I recall sort of moments and go, how epic was it listening to that for the first time? And I'd want to relive that small synapse of an experience. So it wouldn't take me out of it to just listen to it on its own. There, there we have it. But here's the thing. We're still not done. There's still three more songs to Operation Mindcrime. And this is where the gold star rule kicks in. So, gentlemen, waiting for 22, if this song went up against anything off Metropolis Part 2, or if it's a song that you would actively seek out on its own again, would you give it a point? But before you do that, Tom, where are we at now? Because it really is just one minute long, an instrumental piece, just a piece of... Uh, clean guitar yeah 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 so waiting for 22 really leans on to the following song uh my empty room uh but basically what has happened so far and it's kind of again we talk about that idea of scene ends they're resetting the set for what's to come next so suffering from an almost complete loss of memory nikki is put into a mental hospital where he retraces in his mind his last moments with Mary, which I think it feels really intentional to have an instrumental track here because when you think back and reflect, you, you have to focus so much on those particular things and it makes sense to not focus on the words but focus on the mood that that memory carries as well. And I think that track does that um, superfluously. Ben, your take on Waiting for 22. When it comes to Waiting for 22, I think it doesn't really give us anything that we haven't already heard. We've heard how nice that light melodic guitar tone is. And it's kind of just biding a little bit of time. It connects with my empty room as well. And can I just say that it's worth the build up and the anticipation because the final track that closes out this album, Eyes of a Stranger, well, I'm going to get to it when we get to it, but I'm very much looking forward to saying a few things about that. Uh, I, I'm in agreement with you too. I don't think any of us are going to be willing to give this a bonus point or the gold star, great middle standoff seal of approval. We'll listen to that again. So I don't think that's getting any bonus points, is it? It's not going to get any bonus points. And it's not to say that they're bad songs. I mean, they're that quick that they're over in a blink yeah. of an eye. But there was better. Process. Electric uh, Requiem, I think, did a better job as an intro at, you know, right. kind of taking things to a hundred to the next level. So yeah, it's, it's a pass from me, but they're still welcome additions to what is just a mammoth classic album of uh, rock. Okay. Uh, what about my empty room? I feel very similar to waiting for 22. They both complement each other very much, but at the end of the day, when you listen through the album, are they going to come to mind? Not really. They were there just to kind of segue into the, the final last hurrah of the record so no i'm not going to add it. It, it it does really feel like that these two kind of blend into one another um and that's not a discredit but it kind of feels like it's just a part of the foreground yeah setting the scene laying the foreground that's a nice analogy actually okay so i don't think any of gold stars are going to waiting for 22 or my empty room but I think we might be awarding some here the final track of operation mind crime how does the story end tom Eyes of a stranger. Oh, get ready. Okay, so back in the present, in the hospital room, at the beginning of the story, Nicky has regained his memory, but now stares at his image in a mirror, unable to recognise who he is and what he has become. Whew. Hence the mirror never lies, which is one of the lyrics that is uh, uh, given in this song. 
yeah, I, I, I think this, also like Metropolis Part 2, I think this really leaves a story on a big cliffhanger, which I love. I eat that up. Um, and I think the lyrics reflect that beautifully too. Mm. Instrumentally, Ben, what makes this song a damn good closer? I think that everything kind of comes back at the end on this track. We go back to this idea of symbols kind of kicking off the song before we even get to a proper drum beat. We have the hospital ward and all that kind of thing that we'd been hearing early on in the album. And we build up again with like guitars, what this band loves to do, but this has to be one of my favorite riffs of all time. I think the main riff of this song is probably my top 10 riffs of all time. And not just that, but this is the best Queen Shrike song I've ever heard. It is just stunning. There's a fantastic music video for it. It's all filmed in black and white. It's really great stuff. And I feel as if to back up my claim about the riff, the band knew that riff was amazing because they actually bring it back at the end of the song. And that's what kind of carries out towards the end of the album. And then the cymbals pick up a little bit extra. Jeff Tate brings it with, again, another stunning vocal performance. I mean, there's not a bad moment of him on the album. It's stunning all the way through. But I love the guitar riffs. I love just the vocal hooks, the flow, the melody. And I just think it's a tremendous rock song. Seriously, I can't fault it. I'd probably give it a perfect score of 10 out of 10 this song. So I think that warrants a bonus point from you, doesn't it, Ben? It, it certainly does, yeah. This is the best track of the record, in my opinion. Excellent. So, therefore, Ben Holt is giving uh, Eyes of a Stranger a gold star, giving an extra bonus point to Operation Mindcrime. Tom, do you do you share the same sentiment? I think I do. I think lyrically and rhythmically, this, I guess, is the icing on the cake i think some of my favorite lyrics in this song are the closing words uh, from the eyes of a stranger afraid to know what lies behind the stare is such a chilling way to end this saga and i think um it really uh i guess finishes it off well but in uh the state as well that you want more not only that like the ending lead guitar parts completely ruthless feel and then there's all those flashbacks you hear snippets of revolution calling operation mind crime you can hear the political rally again it all just builds builds and builds and builds and fills up uh, the the airwaves in the ears and then snap done black and then the ominous i remember now and then that's it curtain down there you go. That, that's a great way to put it, actually. Curtain down, end of the show. I do want to mention to those listening that Queen Shrike did return in 2006 with Operation Mindcrime 2, and it did feel a little bit like a, a bit of a cash-in. I hate to say that, but it seemed as if the band were trying to return to former glories, and it wasn't the same lineup, and the production was vastly different because it's been so many years since... 1988 and the album for a whole didn't even come remotely close to the first one so just make sure if you want to go and listen through operation Minecrime, remember for the look for the original not for part two all right just to be conclusive tom uh will you would you seek out eyes of a stranger actively again or would it beat a metropolis part two track if it did i would act i i, I would definitely actively seek out this song i think it does a lot 
for the story as a whole. It wraps it up uh, like a present with a nice bow. And I think it's definitely the um, it, it's it's definitely the end game that I'll come back to most definitely. All right. So well, there we go. I decided. Well, not decide. You have decided to give that an extra bonus point. And gentlemen, we have now reached the end of the battle. So let's uh, work out where all our tally scores lied. And it's <laughs> as much as it's vastly different. Uh, some of us have mirrored each other. I can reveal uh, for myself that Metropolis Part Two. Uh, gets my grand point beating Operation Mindcrime nine to three. So that's, that's, that, that's one to Metropolis. Uh, ben, Operation Mindcrime won for you six to seven, seven to six in favor of Mindcrime. So that, that, that's tied the game up. A what quick comment on that. Operation Mind... Uh, sorry, Scenes from the Memories, I've always said is in my top 10 favorite albums of all time. And I've heard thousands of albums. And... <laughs> When we did this and we went head to head, I kind of realized just how incredible Operation Minecrime is. So maybe it might make it into my 10 if I'm to reevaluate down the line. Well, the deciding vote goes to Tom. And Tom, Metropolis for you scored six. Operation Minecrime scored seven. So therefore, the second grand point Ooh. goes to Operation Minecrime. And your winner of this battle is Operation Minecrime. How does that make you feel? There we go, gentlemen. That's yeah. I, I I think reflecting back on it, it does make a lot of sense. And from a storytelling aspect, it did do a lot for me. I really enjoyed it. Uh, not to say that um, since um, uh, Metropolis Part Two didn't do that, um, but definitely um, Operation Mindcrime did do this for me. I would fully uh, take anyone's opinion either way. I think there's no right or wrong answer with these two albums. They're both landmark records and, and you can have a great time listening to either one of them. So all up for discussion. Excellent. Well, uh, Ben, I'm glad, I'm glad we got together for a great metal stand together. It was great fun having you on for the very first time. And Tom, as a EP of Artsman, thank you very much for collaborating with Mosh Pit today. It was my absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me on the show. If at any point you were affected by the topics discussed in this podcast. Always remember, help and support is available to you at any time at Lifeline 13 11 14, Beyond Blue at 1300 22 46 36, Kids Helpline at 1800 55 1800, the Sexual Assault and Domestic Violence Counseling Service at 1800 737 732, and Gambler's Help 1800 1-800- 858-858. Just in case I didn't say explicitly during our conversation, I would also give Eyes of a Stranger a gold star. Not that it matters, as Queensryche won the day in the end in a real close finish, only tallying one more tally point than Dream Theatre for Ben and Tom. A big thanks goes out again to Tom Denham, EP of Sin's Art Smitten. You can catch that show Wednesdays from 4 to 6 p.m. and Sundays from 2 to 4 p.m. on Sin 90.7 FM, digital radio, or syn.org.au. And if you want to hear Ben get even more excited about even more bands, tune in to Mosh Pit on Sin Thursday nights at 8 p.m. to 10 on Sin 90.7, digital radio, or Sin syn.org.au Also, be sure to check out Tom's own original fictional adventure The Glam Gizmo Podcast available at syn.org.au that's syn.org.au 
Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Omni.fm, and Spotify. To stay up to date with this show, The Great Metal Standoff, head over to the Facebook, the old FaceCB, facebook.com forward slash Metal Standoff Pod. And tell us your winner between Metropolis Part 2 and Operation Mindcrime. We'd love to hear from you. Till the next battle, that's all for now. Thanks for joining us, and until next time, open your eyes. Thank you.